0: was six years old or seven, actually. My, my father officially retired in 1957 um, from Major League Baseball. And at home, uh, the, our focus as a family was on the civil rights movement in his post-baseball years. So that was what our dinner table conversations were about. So we did talk a great deal about prejudice and about um, integration. And my brothers and I were integrating our schools. I was integrating my elementary school. And and the same thing with my, my brothers, uh, their their respective schools. So that was what we talked about. Um, no, In no way did we believe that uh, my father's fame um, erased bigotry or prejudice.
1: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, editor-at-large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, Sharon Robinson joins us by phone. Sharon is the author of several books for young readers, including her latest, The Hero Two Doors Down. The daughter of baseball great Jackie Robinson, Sharon is also an educational consultant for Major League Baseball. Later in the program, We'll hear Ken Burns talk about his new documentary about Jackie Robinson, which premieres in April on PBS. Let's start with Sharon. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Sharon.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, Suzanne. I'm actually thrilled. The podcast is new to me, so I'm, I'm happy to learn a new way to get the word out.
1: Terrific, terrific. Okay, so for starters, we would love for you to read From the afterword in your new book, The Hero Two Doors Down, I think this will give listeners some context for the book.
0: Okay. The Hero Two Doors Down is based on a true story. It takes place in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn in 1948. Stephen Satlow truly lived two doors down from my parents, Jack and Rachel Robinson. In reality, Steve was Sarah and Archie's middle child. To keep the focus on Steve's relationship with Jackie, I left out his sisters, Paula and Cena. Steve's best friend in the story is based on his sister, Sina. Since the story happened before I was born, my strongest memories of my mother, father, and Steve's mother, Sarah, each star- sharing their reflections on the Christmas tree story. This family lore marked the beginning of a lifelong friendship between the Satlows and the Robinsons.
1: Thank you. Um, I have to say, I read the entire book thinking it was Senna (laughs) instead of Sina. Oh, oh, is that right (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me when I was a kid, I read Catcher in the Rye. And afterwards, I said to my parents, what kind of a name is Phobe? It was Phoebe. (laughs) 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 Anyway. um, All right. So the book is so charming and there's a lovely Christmas tree story in here. You, You tell about, first, the unlikely friendship between your dad and a little Jewish boy in Brooklyn in the late 1940s. Uh, how did the friendship come about, and why did your dad think that a Jewish family would want a Christmas tree?
0: Well, actually, my parents, in ni- 1948, um, my father was uh, starting his first season with, second season with Brooklyn Dodgers, and um, my parents rented the second story of a two-family house on Tilton Avenue. And it was a neighborhood that was predominantly Jewish, and the home that they rented um, an apartment in was owned by a black family. Um, and Steve truly lived two doors down, uh, and he was a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan and a big Jackie Robinson fan. So when his father told him that the Robinsons were moving in, um, you know, of course, Steve was you know, beyond thrilled and excited and, and just couldn't wait to that moment. And then um as the as their friendship evolved over a six uh, month period, they they found that they were both getting ready for parallel holidays um without understanding that they were completely different holidays. So Steve's family is preparing for Hanukkah, which happens the same that year happened on the same weekend as Christmas, and my family was preparing for Christmas. And in that preparation, they Steve came over while they were decorating the tree and he was just mesmerized by this um, large, uh, evergreen tree in the living room, um, with, and helping my dad, uh, string lights and put on ornaments. Um, and at one point my father asked, just innocently asked Steve, you know, like, you know, where is your, is your tree up yet? And Steve said he didn't have one. So my father, when Steve left, just assumed that there was a, maybe a financial reason why Steve didn't have a tree. And he went out and purchased Steve a tree. So it just became a very funny story between these two families that had was a total misunderstanding. And yet it turned out that um, they had to work around it and they did and became good friends.
1: It's a, a little ironic. The word mensch comes to mind. So your dad was a mensch. <laughs> 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 um, yes, he was. <laughs> yes. he. It's such a heartwarming story. Um, but we all know that your dad faced such cruel realities during his life, not just on the baseball field, but off, of course. And I just wondered, you know, you, of course, were not born at the time of the story, but there is a little bit in the book about the reaction that some neighbors had when your parents moved to that neighborhood in Brooklyn. You know, what did your folks recall about that time?
0: Well, actually, um, Suzanne, it was not my parents moving in. It was the fact that a black family was going to purchase the home. So they were integrating uh, a, a, a Jewish neighborhood, and there were neighbors that didn't want a black family to purchase the home, so they, some of them, sent around a petition. And when it reached Sarah and and Steve's father Archie, they were horrified, and they because they felt that um, Jews should not should be the last person to discriminate against somebody. And that's when they explained uh, the story of their own family migration and um, and the history of of Jews just trying to find peace um, in. in a a place to live and safety and, uh, to Steve over dinner. Um, so they, once my parents moved in because they were renters in this house, the neighborhood was happy. They were thrilled because, (laughs) um,
1: they had Jackie Robinson moving into their neighborhood. So. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. People are so fickle. (laughs) So. Exactly. (laughs) So did your dad tell you stories about, you know, how, he not only could, would face bigotry, but also how people would respond to him in a positive way because of who he was and his heroism.
0: You know, we, we lived it. Um, so my father did not, um, we, were, we were really too young. I was six years old or seven, actually. when my, my father officially retired in 1957 from um, Major League Baseball. And at home, uh, the, our focus as a family was on the civil rights movement in his post-baseball years. So that was what our dinner table conversations were about. So we did talk a great deal about prejudice and about um, integration, and my brothers and I were integrating our schools. I was integrating my elementary school, and, and the same thing with my, my brothers, uh, their, their respective schools. So that was what we talked about. Um, no, in no way did we believe that uh, my father's fame um, erased bigotry or prejudice. Um, and we saw it firsthand, and in 1954, my, when my parents decided to move to Connecticut, and they wanted a property with land and, and a house and privacy, um, they, were, they ran into redlining. They ran into neighborhoods where they didn't, would not sell to um, a black family, no matter how famous my father was. And it was really some of the more prominent neighbors in the community who came forward, Andrea Simon specifically and she met with real estate agents and with community people and with ministers and said not in my community. So we we knew that my father's fame did not erase prejudice and we were experiencing experiencing it in our own lives.
1: Okay, you mentioned Andrea Simon. Um, I just yes. finished Carly Simon's memoir. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask you about that could you talk a little bit about Carly Simon's parents, and Carly as a Dodgers fan, and your dad?
0: <laughs> yes. Um, well, so Andrea Simon was, Andrea was Carly's mother. Um, and she and my mother became very good, very, very good friends. Um, and in fact, our families also were, were good friends throughout. But um, the first, our first introduction to Andrea was when she came forward and, and went to bat for us um, to Get the property we wanted in Stamford, Connecticut. In that process, we my parents found a wonderful um, six-acre land plot of land that was uh, sat on a hill, and there was water at the base with a, a lake that flowed down about a quarter of a mile. So it was everything that, and reservoirs they provided a privacy on three sides. So there was everything my my father and mother were looking for, and the house had been there was a foundation for the house and. And they worked with the builder and actually um, built the house, but it wasn't ready in time for us to start school in um, 1955. So what we, the Andrea Simon, offered us their summer home in Stamford, Connecticut, right? And that's where we actually lived for the for the first um, you know four or five months until our our home was completed and we could actually move into our own home in Stamford. So along that time we. You know, throughout that time, we just became even closer with the Simon family. They actually didn't live there with us; they had they would return in, in the school year. They returned to their home in Riverdale, and we stayed in their home in Stanford.
1: I see. Well, did you ever get to hear them singing? You
0: know, yes, all of my life. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, well, <laughs> and Peter is a great. Uh, Peter is their son, and Peter yes. is a great yes. photographer. And so we have. He, he often sends us just amazing photos from our, our, um, from our earlier years when when Peter was. You know, I, I guess I was like 1920, and when I have some photographs that he just sent me recently, and um, you know, just some of our more treasured family photos come from Peter.
1: Oh, that is so lovely, so lovely. Mm. Well, now getting back to the friendship between your father and Steve. What inspired you to tell their story, particularly since you weren't even alive when it happened, and how did you go about researching the book?
0: Oh, it was was great fun to research the book. Um, You know, Steve's story has always been special to me, and I I saw it as Steve's story. I I first told it as a picture book story, and then I realized how many layers it had. And when we had an opportunity to do it in a more full way, in a chapter book um, I just knew it had to be Steve's story he's a great storyteller but I have worked for Major League Baseball for the past 20 years and we um, do a, a part we do a program called breaking barriers and it's all about overcoming obstacles and we give kids um, values that I associate with my dad's success as strategies to overcome obstacles in their own lives and help them understand that you know obstacles are a part our barriers are a part of life and we have to find a way around them um, so in that process, I've watched, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of kids um, react to meeting their baseball hero in person. And I've always been fascinated with how they, you know, they talk about them constantly until they get up and meet them and then they can't quite figure out what to say. Right, right. Well, and it's can do so painful. They a ball yeah, in it their is. face
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they're staring up and it's just right. such a so special. So it just made me want to share um, this story of Stephen, my father, because not only is, is it unusual to get to meet your hero, your, your star hero, but to actually live two doors down and, and become friends with them is uh, even more special. And I, I just felt that the, the story, particularly during these, these times, um, would have such meaning for kids.
1: Absolutely. There's such a hunger for positive images and literature for all children. Could you talk a little bit about, I think many kids may not be familiar just with the heartbreaking history of Brooklyn and baseball, a little <laughs> bit of the background there.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, New York's um, borough, of Brooklyn, um, has had baseball dating back to the 1840s, 1880s. Um, it, the name changed a few times, but the Brooklyn Dodgers were not just a baseball team. They were, they were, the whole identity of of the community. Um, and then uh, they they be, in uh, my father um, integrated integrated um, the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. And at that period, from 1947 to 19, to the last season in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Dodgers had seven pennants and one World Championship for the entire all those years they had been in baseball. But the um, the community had a big struggle. They they needed the owners of the of the Brooklyn Dodgers needed a new stadium, and they wanted to build it um, in a place where actually now we we have the Brooklyn Nets, hmm. and they weren't able to get their their location, and they had to they felt they had to move forward with their team, and they got offered a chance to go to uh, as part of the westward expansion of Major League Baseball they had an opportunity to go to Los Angeles. Well, Brooklynites were heartbroken when um, the Dodgers actually announced that they were moving to Los Angeles and they'd lost. Um, they were very angry and they just lost um, their team that had fought so, so been so determined to win. and finally won a championship and now they were moving them, you know, away and it was taking away a big identity in Brooklyn. So, it was heartbreaking, and today you still find people that, you know, remember with great sadness the loss of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and then you find other people who are, have moved beyond it and are excited that they now have, um, you know, a minor league baseball team there and an NBA team, in, you know, right in the heart of Brooklyn. Um, you know, so Brooklyn has – and we also, you know, that's how we got the Mets. They uh yes. with both losing losing two teams because the Giants also moved to San Francisco yes so New York lost two teams at once and the Mets sort of came in and became that uh, hometown um
1: underdog team right right they, they lived up to that underdog title until, until recently <laughs> until recently yes yes no they're they're my team so I'm not they are they are them. well along with the Dodgers
0: certainly because the Dodgers still remain our
1: Right.
0: Our primary team. but right. um, That's great. And that's our, our team as well.
1: And so, of course, your dad, you know, was such an extraordinary baseball player and athlete. And, you know, as you alluded to, a civil rights leader. But he was also incredibly kind and compassionate. That That is a rare combination, it seems to me. How do you think he managed to be so good, at, particularly in the face of all of the evil he was confronted with?
0: Now, Suzanne, um, he was a man of deep faith, and I think that was the basis of his strength, um, along with having a, an amazing partner throughout his life, um, and a deep love for his mother, who was such a, a force in his childhood. Um, but my father had a way to, um, the civil rights movement and the crises, various crises within the movement, gave my father uh, an opportunity to commit his life to social change and really use his fame to um, make a difference in the movement. And um, he dedicated his post-baseball career. Um, He had a job, certainly, but he also um, was a fundraiser for the uh, Civil Rights Movement. And I remember very specifically when he brought us into his work um, he came home from having met Dr. King when I was 13. And we often, at the dinner table, we would certainly talk about what was going on in our lives, but we mostly talked about what was happening in the movement. And, um, and my father was the one traveling south, and he came back and he said, you know, I'm, I've am i been tra- traveling south, and you guys have, are inter- integrating this, your schools in the north, and but I want to sort of bring the two together. And the way we're going to do it is um, we're going to start Having a family mission, and our mission is social change, and we will, um, you know, go on some marches together. We will also do some fundraising here at, at our home, and we started doing a series of jazz concerts and to raise money. And our very first one, um, part of the money went to Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King, and he literally came to our house, and it was just shortly after we'd seen him at the March on Washington, and we had been so inspired by his message. Um, so when he was coming to our house that day just brought our, our own personal involvement in the movement to a, a new level. And my brothers and I, I mean, we were young, but we were, you know, we found a role. We, we sold sodas and we, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, hot dogs and, uh, you know, to raise money um, for, and, and actually we raised money for um, bail money because the activists would be um, jailed and they, were, they didn't have money to get out of jail bond money to get out of jail. So that was our mission. And it it just set up a lifelong um, effort, and I think that that um, was critical to my father's, um, you know, finding a role for himself within the movement. Now, that being said, um, his life was not without personal or or even professional struggle. And, you know, his deepest struggle was where race, race and race issues was... At the heart of the struggle, um, he also had a, a, a major struggle, which he ended up ultimately losing with diabetes and heart disease. Um, and also, he, as he got, you know, older, and yet, as I look back now, my father died when he was 53, so he wasn't that old. Um, he became in conflict with many of the young activists, and and um, they had. A sort of a public disagreement at times, and it was really painful to be a part of in our home because, you know, we knew that he was under tremendous stress around his health and then tremendous stress around where was the what was the right direction for the movement, and he really felt it had to go towards economic development. And that's the avenue he chose, but at the time there were just so many avenues out there and, and so many struggles that, you know, finding your voice was a difficult thing. And, and for him to have trouble finding his voice after him having such a strong voice um, was was very difficult.
1: Right. Well, I had been thinking about you and your siblings, like how you could possibly make sense of why you had to have this mission in the first place and what it was like to be excluded. And I would imagine your dad as a child, the same thing. Those are such t- tough issues. Nobody can come to terms with them, really. So that must have but, played you know, a huge role.
0: It did, Suzanne, except we were, you know, at that time, I think we had one black and white television in the house, and it was in the room we called the library, because that's where we kept all of our books. Today, people would call it their family room. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we wa- would watch the... We'd come home from school and have dinner, and then we would watch the news together. So we were watching... The struggle of of kids our age as they were integrating schools in the South. And where we were integrating our schools in the North, it was a very different, um, dynamic Mm -hmm. and less threatening. Um, it it certainly was affecting our self-esteem and, and making us, uh, question ourselves. Um, but, um, when my father brought us into the movement by, by saying, you know, we, we can do things right here in our own home to raise money and, and help the movement, it made us feel more a part of a larger mission. And that was really important because other, before that we were sort of isolated in our own efforts to um, create change in, in, in a society that, um, you know, had racial segregation. So right. um, I don't, it was actually very helpful to me. I, I was very um, motivated by the Little Rock Nine, and then I yes. remember having dinner, and the and the kids, the Little Rock Nine students, called my father for inspiration, uh, uh. and he came back to the table, and I just, and he was so, he was so moved by the fact they called him. He was like, I think these kids are so courageous, and yet they're calling me and in, um, for inspiration, and. I was just in awe. <laughs> yeah. One that they had actually called on the telephone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's remarkable. And he'd spoken to them, and oh, then was going my. down there, and um, and so it made me both admire my father more, and also um, made me feel very proud that we, as a family, you know, had really did have a role.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, what types of? I'm wondering what kinds of books did you and your brothers uh, gravitate toward? Was there anything you could identify with either in school or the library? Or
0: none, not sp- least bit
1: at that point.
0: Um, you know, most of the, the children's literature back then was, um, you know, they taught uh, kids to read these very simplistic books and lives that we did not lead. Um, and there were no children of color in any of any of the books we read, but what I found um, that I gravitated towards were all the characters that um, were rebels, you mm-hmm. know, whether it was Pippi Longstocking or um, Nancy Drew Mysteries. Uh, not rebels, but they were just really activists themselves. And,
1: uh-huh.
0: and, um, and they were different. Um, um, so that, that's sort of what I was drawn to. My brothers were drawn more to adventure, so, yes, we did find stories that we we could relate to. And um, even though the characters were different than we were.
1: Right, right. I see. Um, and I'd like to ask about your mother. Um, it seems to me that she plays a towering role in American history, even if behind the scenes. And I just wondered, you know, what kind of stories or inspiration I'm sure she has provided so much for you, over the years, but just a little bit about her, so we could get to know her. Some, you know, um, we can help our listeners get to know her.
0: Yeah, you know, my mother um, is an extraordinary woman, and, and always was. Um, when I was younger, I uh, admired her, um, and my admiration was almost like I had her on a pedestal. Uh, my mother would not come out of the her bedroom without a beautiful robot. You know? <laughs> so even it was re- early morning breakfast, you know, she always looked, my mother always looked gorgeous. Um, and yet she was very earthy. Um, she brought um, the arts into our home. Um, it was for my mother I learned to love music and books and, and art and all types of music. Um, on our jazz Sundays when we'd have the jazz concert, she'd wake us all up with Aretha Franklin and... Um, Mahalia Jackson, you know. So oh, We had gospel in our home as well. Um, but my mother, I think the, the my mother's greatest strength is her strength. And, and her, um, she's very smart and reads constantly and reads the newspaper. Even today, she's 93, 93 and a half. Uh-huh. But she won't miss a day of the New York Times. Uh-huh. So we have, Um, she's been, you know, my father died when I was 22. So she's been absolutely critical in my adult development. Mm -hmm. And, um, we've been a partner in parenting. I I was a single parent and, you know, my more so than my child's father, um, who lived in California and I lived in Connecticut, um, or New York or wherever I lived, we, we weren't in the same town, um, very much after, after our son was born. So, my mother was often the other partner I would go to um, for support around my son. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's everything to us, and that was true with my father. I used to always think when I was younger, like, you know, dad has to go be, die before her, mean anybody dies first, because he can't manage without her. <laughs> he was absolutely uh, dependent on her and totally devoted. Um, he and I, it, our big Father-daughter activity would be to go into New York, and my father had access to the um, wholesale houses. And with wholesale houses, you bought in bulk, and you were invited in, and it was a private experience. And the the owners of these um, sto- these stores or or lines of clothing, you know, would invite my father in, and then want to talk about baseball or politics. And two of the houses that we he was very close to was one was Mr. Love, who was uh, who designed little girls' dresses, and he brought color into to little girls' dresses. And so my father would take me there, and I would it was like being in a fantasy land. I'd be able to pick out, you know, from these gorgeous dresses that were coming out with their spring line or whatever. And the same thing was true with my mother. He would take me over to the lingerie shop, and I'd help him pick out, you know, six or a dozen, you know, pieces of beautiful lingerie for my mother. So I always had this sort of, um, you know, I didn't understand their love story uh-huh. as a child because we never do understand our parents' love story. Um, right. I understand it better now as an adult, certainly. Right. But um, I did understand that he was very
1: devoted to her. It's very cool. He had a very strong mother, very strong wife, and a very strong daughter. <laughs> Thank <Right>. you. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> terrific. And, and how are you carrying on your father's and your mother's legacy with your own writing and mentoring and other, um, activities? Well, I've been,
0: um, really blessed Suzanne, um, because where I do, I have learned from them and, and uh, followed in their footsteps in many ways. I've done it on my own terms. So my mother was a nurse, but she was a psychiatric nurse and, um, I became a nurse. Um, we both were influenced by her mother um, to become nurses and, and love our profession, but I became a nurse midwife. Um, so we had very different um, types of nursing experiences, and um, so uh, and and my mother supported that certainly. She and my father, both of them, were very much behind us becoming individuals as you know we moved into adulthood. Um, and then I writing books has you know just been uh, always a labor of love for me because um, I started working with Scholastic 20 years ago with the Breaking Barriers program, and we had to write curriculum for kids and then go into classrooms. So I was spending a lot of time with kids in classrooms, and I had taught at the university level on the graduate school level. So this um, work I did with Major League Baseball and Scholastic was my chance to be around young kids in the classroom, and I absolutely loved it. I loved breaking complex, um, material down so the kids would understand it, could get grasped and, and bring it into their lives and into the heart and help them develop their voice. So I, I then began writing books for children. Um, and every time I do, I find that I learned so much myself and things become much clearer. Um, again, very complex material. So mm-hmm. like in, just to give you an example, you know, when I was working on the Hero Two, two Doors Down, there was a great deal of research, because I, when I approached it, I was like, oh, 1948, well, what happened in 1948? You know, I mean, it was post-war, and, um, you know, it was my father's second year, and he didn't even perform well in the first half of that uh, 1948 season, and the Dodgers ended up in third place that year, so, you know, I had to explore and find out, you know, again, the layers and, and what was underneath it, and... Um, at each step, I was amazed at how important 1948 was and how important it was for women's development. You know, women were just beginning to really enter the the work market after coming out of World War II when they were allowed to work and brought into the war on, on very um, important, played very important roles in supporting the war. And that moved them into um, becoming... Uh, Employees um, and, and out of the home so much, um, and and more in the community, um, and it, you know, on every level you saw these changes happening in America as we were becoming a more more mature society, and and then just the fact of, of the integration and and the pressures to continue to integrate after, um, baseball had integrated, you know, from, the Truman integrating the armed forces and. The you know, pressure on schools to, um, integrate and, and, um, so it was just, my research was so fascinating yeah. to me, um, that, uh, you know, I just, again, it made me love history even more That's and great. love helping kids understand how important it is to find your passion and, and work towards and be very determined with your goals and, Um, And that history does repeat itself, and we are seeing that right now. Absolutely. Where in 1948, I talk about these issues, um, my father not understanding the culture and and the the cultural differences um, or the religious differences uh, between the black and the Jewish community and how they um, learned through this Christmas tree experience um, that ultimately they were um, more same than different. Yes. And they had, uh, both had deep faith, and their faith just sprung from, from different paths, but um, they learned to get beyond that. And that's really what I want kids to understand, and that's yeah. what I try to do in, in my work.
1: That's, that's fantastic. Um, and just uh, as we wrap up, I'd love to ask at Scholastic, as you know, we saw a preview of Ken Burns's upcoming film about your father, Jackie Robinson, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Uh,
0: you know, Ken Burns is an extraordinary documentarian, and and we were, my mother had been after him for years to actually do a, a documentary on my father, and w- um, we were all interviewed by him, my my brother and I, my mother, and um, it, you see how he gets the material out of people because it's uh, such an amazing experience to be interviewed by. By Ken Burns. So when uh, mom and I saw the documentary just before we showed it as scholastic actually uh, we saw all four hours of it and it was um, quite an emotional experience um, and uh, very powerful um, and there were myths that were you know he, he um, proved uh, that were actually myths and not not based on reality. That people will find um, surprising or shocking, or or um, and then then he helps to explain why that why that myth was created and why he believes you know that anyway so it's just it's just amazing to see it all come together um, the baseball career uh, there are new things that you'll learn from the baseball career and certainly most people don't understand my father's post baseball life. And that's going to be the most uh, interesting, I think, um, because it's something that people don't know about. They don't know about his involvement in the civil rights movement. They don't know about his work with unions, um, or his struggles with diabetes and heart disease, and um, or his, you know, some of the painful personal family moments um, all come out in this. What when you're watching an entire life? So, for us, by the end, we were, I was crying. Yeah, and mom was just you know sort of stunned, Um, and it's it's a lot to take in, but it is you know beautifully done and very very thorough. So I think it's going to be a great
1: piece. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Okay, well thank you so very much, Sharon. It was such a pleasure to talk with you, and we wish you all the best with this book and take good care.
0: Yes, yeah, you as well.
1: Okay. Now, let's play a few clips of Ken Burns discussing Jackie Robinson, the man, and the new documentary about him. These clips were recorded in October when Ken came to Scholastic to give us a preview
2: of his new film. We we made a, um, a very long uh, nine-part, nine-inning, 18-and-a-half-hour uh, history of baseball in which... Uh, the central sort of moral uh, narrative thread the, the sort of the, the heart of the film was the story of Jackie Robinson the Negro Leagues that preceded him the separate but athletically equal uh, Negro Leagues and in the course of doing that film I'd interviewed uh, Rachel uh, obviously uh, Jackie's widow about his life and the meaning and the significance and it was the, the climax of the film of the whole series was his arrival and and in the last episode, he passes away. And it was very moving and powerful. But after that film, Rachel and I would have conversations in which she said, You know, there should be a standalone documentary. Yeah. I said, Of course there should be. Yeah. And she stepped up the pressure um, <laughs> over the years to, to do this. And I am extremely busy. I'm working on 10 films at once right now. And so it was. Okay, just I mean, a little overachiever. Here, <laughs> Oh, you have no idea. It's it's (laughs) pathetically sick. But um, she said to me, I really want you to do this film. And I said, I really want to do it. But I'm so busy that I don't even see a crack in the schedule for five years where I could even begin it. And we like to incubate these things. And she said, I'll wait. Just remember, April 15th, 1947. There are no integrated barracks in the military. There's not a single lunch counter uh, that has been integrated, except the ones that Jackie did in Pasadena as a little boy. No one's moved to the back of the bus in Montgomery, Alexa- except Jackie, who did it 11 years before Rosa Parks at a military base during World War II in Texas. Um, Martin Luther King is just a junior at high in, in, in college, at Morehouse College in Atlanta, who's looking on this. Malcolm X is in prison. Right. Malcolm Little's in prison, nothing's happened. And Jackie is the first one since the 13th and 14th amendment. That then, you understand the significance. It isn't just integrating baseball, it's it's pointing us in the direction that we wanna go. And that requires, I think, a little bit more diligent study. This, This film is about courage and it's a courage on lots of levels. Obviously there's a physical dimension to that courage that we normally think people who go into battle and and what he did in the baseball diamond is is akin to that kind of war. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a kind of moral and ethical and personal uh, courage that he displays. And even he's fallible like the rest of us, and even when mistakes are made, you see a kind of brutal honesty at, at one point in his life, and I won't give it away, where just the most unspeakable tragedy occurs. The media in an interview are trying to let him off the hook And he won't let himself off the hook and he is withering in the self criticism that is so poignant and so authentic that you just, I mean, there are many things that I feel blessed that I'm an American, you know, this beautiful continent, the protection that the oceans more or less provide for us. the people that we have produced. You know, I like living in a country that produced Sidney Bechet and Louis Armstrong, you know? But I really love living in a country that has an example of Jackie Robinson.
1: I want to thank Sharon and Ken so much for sharing their insights into one of America's greatest icons. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl.